Songs for FRCR is back and judging by your emails, we've been sorely missed. We've had a short holiday, which I hope you agree was a well-deserved one, but we are now fully refreshed and ready to get back into our weekly podcasts. Today, we're starting with ovarian cystic lesions. Before we launch into today's topic, we absolutely have to stop and say a big thank you to every lovely person that sent us an email letting us know how much they were missing our podcasts. It's very kind and it's lovely to hear that our efforts are appreciated. In the interest of time, we can't read out all of your emails, but we will start reading a selection every episode, starting today. Our first shout out is to Saika Amreen, a radiology registrar in the UK, who writes that her commutes have been bland since it's been such a long time that we've released something. Thank you so much. Another UK radiology registrar called Nida let us know how much she was enjoying our podcasts and I quote, they are lovely and amazing and part of your daily revision routine. We're so glad to hear we're helping you. You guys are wonderful. Please do send us your emails and we will read them out every episode from here on in. Now, it wouldn't be Songs for FRCR without a topic relevant song. And we have got a very special one for you today. Why is this song special? Let me tell you. It's our unbiased opinion here at Songs for FRCR that radiologists are generally multi-talented, multi-faceted, all-round brilliant people. And our singer today is a neuroradiology interventional fellow. He's based in Newcastle and his name is Amar Chotai. Check him out on Spotify, iTunes, Twitter. So we will hand over to Amar to introduce his song La Senorita and head straight into ovarian cystic lesions. Hi guys, I'm Amar. I'm an interventional neuroradiology trainee in Newcastle. I hope you enjoy my music. Take it easy. Thank you, Amar. We will definitely be Google translating your Latino pop number later. First, I have some bad news. In order to talk about ovarian cysts, I do have to mention the ovarian cycle. I know it's something none of us have thought about since medical school, but I promise it will only take three minutes at the most. 
So here we go. The ovarian or the menstrual cycle, call it what you will, is on average 28 days. We're dividing the ovarian cycle into two halves. The first half, day 1 to day 14, is the follicular phase. The second half, day 14 to 28, is the luteal phase. The reason they have these names will become apparent in a few seconds. We're going to start by talking about the female fetus. As a female fetus is developing within its ovaries, it is producing primordial follicles. These primordial follicles begin developing after conception and the growth is arrested in the prophase state of the cell cycle. These primordial follicles give rise to the ovarian primary follicles and that is where the ovarian cycle begins. So the ovarian cycle, I've said, is around 28 days for most women. It starts on day one, funnily enough, and day one to around day five to six is where the woman is menstruating, bleeding. Now, we don't actually care about that. All we want to know is what's happening in the ovary at this time. So day one in the ovary, we have 12 to 20 primary follicles and these primary follicles start to develop under the influence of the very aptly named follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. These primary follicles are developing into secondary follicles, and by around day 9, which is a late follicular phase, there is only one healthy secondary follicle remaining. This is the dominant follicle. The rest have all been reabsorbed back into the ovary. This remaining follicle, the dominant follicle, is making shed loads of oestrogen. By day 14, this dominant follicle has matured and it's now called a graphian follicle. Now it's all coming back to you from med school. So the graphian follicle is the mature ovarian follicle. By day 14, it's making so much oestrogen that the positive feedback from the oestrogen production is enough to cause a surge in a hormone called luteinizing hormone. Now this spike in luteinizing hormone is the body's signal to the graphian follicle to release the egg into the tube. So 24 to 36 hours after this luteinizing hormone surge, the egg is released. The follicle ruptures, releases the egg into the tube and whatever is remaining of the follicle is now called a corpus luteum. The corpus luteum is important because it produces prostaglandin and other hormones in case a pregnancy develops. It helps to maintain a potential pregnancy. Obviously, once the corpus luteum is produced, we are then in the luteal phase of the ovarian cycle. The corpus luteum gets bigger. If there is no pregnancy, it will begin to involute. Now, at its biggest, when it's most mature, a corpus luteum will have a thick, irregular wall and will have very, very high peripheral vascularity. Obviously, if there's no pregnancy, the luteum involutes, 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 and the whole cycle starts all over again. So, quick recap. 28-day ovarian cycle. Day 1. We have 12 to 20 primary follicles developing under the influence of FSH. By day 9, one follicle remains. This follicle is making a load of oestrogen. That oestrogen, by day 14, is high enough 
to create a surge in luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone LH is the body's signal to release the egg from the graphene follicle. 24 to 36 hours after this luteinized hormone surge, the graphene follicle ruptures and releases the egg. A corpus luteum remains and we move into the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. Luteum gets bigger and then it begins to involute if there's no pregnancy. That's it. I promised you this menstrual cycle would take only three minutes. I think I took three minutes and 20 seconds, so I kept to my word. Let's now move away from the menstrual cycle and talk about the cysts that can arise as a result of these processes. The first cysts we're going to talk about are functional ovarian cysts. These are by far and away the most common cysts in premenopausal women. Usually they have no symptoms and are often just incidental findings and the vast majority will just regress within a couple of cycles. Functional cysts are also called follicular cysts, but what are they? Well, this is why I wanted to talk about the menstrual cycle first of all. So we said that ovarian follicles will develop under follicle-stimulating hormone. They'll get bigger and bigger until we have one dominant follicle. Now this dominant follicle, as it matures into a graphene follicle, will at most reach 25 millimetres in size. At that point it will rupture because of the luteinizing hormone surge and then it becomes a corpus luteum. Now for some reason, if there is no ovulation and it doesn't rupture, the follicle just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. At that point, we call it a follicular cyst. Now, a follicular cyst, you can't call it a cyst if it's less than three centimetres. That's probably still within the, the range of the normal ovarian follicle size. But a follicular cyst is when it gets from three to eight centimetres. The vast majority of them will regress spontaneously. And as I've already said, they're usually an incidental finding. Your patient might have a history of irregular cycles, she might not. Generally, it's a routine pelvic scan and their incidental findings. They will be what you would expect a simple cyst to be, thin-walled, anechoic. We don't want to see anything like nodules, we don't want to see any vascularity or anything worrying. A simple, anechoic, thin-walled cyst. So what are you going to do if you see a follicular cyst on a routine ultrasound? The short answer is nothing. If it's less than 5 centimetres in a premenopausal woman, it's small, it's simple, with no worrying features, no solid components, no colour flow, no nodules, you can leave it well alone. You don't need to image follow-up. FYI, the rules are different if it's a postmenopausal woman. 
So quick recap, the first cyst is a follicular cyst. We know about follicles because we know about the menstrual cycle now. Follicle gets bigger and bigger because it doesn't rupture at the time of ovulation. And we then call it a follicular cyst when it surpasses the three centimetre mark. Technically, anything less than three centimetres is still a dominant follicle. On ultrasound, you will see thin-walled unilocular cyst with posterior acoustic enhancement typically. If it is less than 5 centimetres, just leave it alone. That's it for follicular cyst. Let's move on to corpus luteal cyst. I'm going to be humming that song all day, but let's move on now to corpus luteal cysts. The corpus luteum, we've already met the corpus luteum. After the graphene follicle ruptures, ovulation occurs, whatever is left is the corpus luteum and it dominates the second half of the menstrual cycle. You can spot a corpus luteum on ultrasound. A mature one will measure around two centimetres. It will have a thick, irregular wall and really high vascularity peripherally. So what happens to this mature two centimetre corpus luteum with a thick wall and marked peripheral vascularity? Well, no pregnancy, it will just involute and become something called a corpus albicans. It reduces rapidly in size, but... If it does not involute for whatever reason, it gives rise to a corpus luteal cyst. When would you see a corpus luteal cyst? Well, most commonly you'll see it in early pregnancy. Up to 98% of women around week 6 of pregnancy will have a corpus luteal cyst. The vast majority will disappear within the first trimester. If they get particularly large, most numbers we've seen thrown about are around 7 centimetres. They may need surgical removal. How will a corpus luteal cyst look different to a follicular cyst? Well, a follicular cyst will have a nice, round, smooth outline. A corpus luteal cyst will have a very irregular outline. It will reach around 5 to 10 centimetres. The walls are very thin, but like I've said, very irregular in outline. It's fairly common to get hemorrhage within a corpus luteal cyst, and you'll see that obviously on ultrasound as fine echoes and sometimes a ground glass appearance. You might even actually see a clot within the cyst. Now I've said they normally have a very thin wall, which is irregular. Unusually, you may find the wall can be thick and hyperechoic, but it's still nothing to worry about. Because many corpus luteal cysts contain hemorrhage, we typically tend to do MR to characterise the lesion further. 
what will you see on MR? Let me tell you. A typical hemorrhagic corpus luteum cyst will be on both T1 and T2 weighted images, intermediate to high signal. The wall will be very clearly evident and you'll see the wall measuring between one and three millimetres. It will enhance after gadolinium. The main differential diagnosis for a hemorrhagic corpus luteal cyst is endometrioma. It can be difficult to differentiate them on MRI. However, you will find that endometriosis tends to have multiple lesions. The multiple lesions also usually have fluid of lots of different signal intensities because the bleeding has been of varying ages. Whereas with a corpus luteal cyst, it will just be usually a solitary hemorrhagic cyst. So quick recap, corpus luteum, it will involute if there's no pregnancy. A normal corpus luteum when it's mature will have a thick irregular wall and lots of peripheral vascularity. If it does not involute, it's called a corpus luteal cyst. We see them in early pregnancy. The vast majority of women will have them and they tend to regress by themselves. The corpus luteal cyst will have an irregular outline and usually a thin wall. On MR, it will be intermediate to high signal on T1 and T2 and you'll see a very distinct, clearly defined wall. That's it for corpus luteal cysts. Let's have some more music from Amar and then we'll get back to our next group. We move on now to fecal lutein cysts. These are the third in our three functional ovarian cyst categories. We've already covered follicular cysts, we've covered corpus luteal cysts, and fecal lutein cysts are the third and final one in the group. So what are fecal lutein cysts? Well, these are cysts that arise from very high levels of HCG. And anything that would give you high HCG would put you at risk of developing a fecal lutein cyst. Now, that could be things like multiple gestations, any of the gestational trophoblastic diseases and ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. They're the three main culprits. What do they look like? Well, of the three groups of functional cysts, these are the biggest. They're usually bilateral, usually multiseptate, but there are no features of malignancy. You won't see any mural nodules, you won't see any septal thickening. You'll just see bilateral multiseptate cystic lesions in a patient that has high levels of HCG. Once you remove the cause of the high HCG level, then the cysts will regress spontaneously. Now we've said that the cause is usually either having multiple pregnancy or gestational trophoblastic disease or ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. If the cause of the HCG is any of the gestational trophoblastic diseases, then the term used is hyperreactio luteinalis. 
and that's a term to describe all of the ovarian changes that you'll see in the presence of gestational trophoblastic disease. The most common form of gestational trophoblastic disease we all know is hydatidiform mole and lutein cysts will feature in 25% of patients with a hydatidiform mole. They can range in size from 5 to up to 20 centimetres. Not always symptomatic but often do present with pain. So quick recap of the three cysts we've talked about already. These three are the functional ovarian cysts. They were follicular cysts, corpus luteal cysts and theca lutein cysts. So follicular cysts, remember, was just when a follicle does not rupture, there's a failure of ovulation and it continues to get bigger and bigger. Once it crosses the three centimetre barrier, we can then call it a follicular cyst. They are common in premenopausal women and will go away by themselves within a couple of cycles. You don't need to do anything about them. The next one was the corpus luteum cyst. These are corpus luteums that do not involute when they're supposed to. A mature corpus luteum will have a thick irregular wall and marked peripheral vascularity. If there's no pregnancy, it is supposed to involute. If it doesn't, you get this corpus luteum cyst. The vast majority of them you'll see in pregnant women in very early pregnancy. They can reach up to 10 centimetres and they'll have this irregular outline, unlike a follicular cyst. They will often have internal hemorrhage, which you will see as fine echoes or ground glass appearance, or sometimes even a proper clot within the cyst. MR will show high to intermediate signal on both T1 and T2 with a very clearly defined wall. Finally, theca lutein cysts are the third of our three functional cyst categories. These are the largest of the three and will occur in patients that have high levels of HCG for whatever reason. They are multiseptate, usually bilateral, and once you remove the cause of the high HCG, they will involute by themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I could do with some more Latino pop and then we'll get back to our ovarian cysts. Let's move on to other causes of ovarian cystic lesions, the first of which is ovarian hyperstimulation. This occurs in women who are having treatment, fertility treatments for ovulation induction and ultrasound-wise what you will see is very similar to theca lutein cysts. You will see bilaterally enlarged ovaries with multiple cysts. The multiple cysts may be simple, they may be hemorrhagic. And the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome is rapid ovarian enlargement, ascites and pleural effusions. They usually present with abdo pain. So quick recap, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, bilaterally enlarged ovaries with multiple cysts that could be simple or hemorrhagic. 
the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome is rapidly enlarging ovaries with ascites and pleural effusions. Patients will usually present with abdominal pain. That's it, let's move on. Next, I'm going to quickly mention paraovarian cysts. What are paraovarian cysts? These are sometimes called paratubal cysts, and they are cysts that arise usually within the broad ligament. Sometimes they're associated with the, the distal, the most terminal portion of the fallopian tube. And what they are are simple, unilocular, thin-walled structures. They can be of any size. They can be very, very big, sometimes even looking as big as the urinary bladder. But to specifically diagnose a paraovarian cyst, you should be able to see a separate ovary on the same side. Paraovarian cysts do not change with the menstrual cycle at all. Complications can be hemorrhage, torsion, rupture, like with any cyst, and there are some reports, although very rare, of malignancies developing within them. You should be concerned about malignancy developing in a paraovarian cyst if you can see papillary projections. So, quickly, paraovarian cyst, what have we just said? Also known as paratubal cysts, usually within the broad ligament, most common in premenopausal women, and they are unilocular, thin-walled structures, variable sizes, and sometimes completely indistinguishable from simple follicular cysts. They don't change with the menstrual cycle, they can be very big, and they can develop cancer within them, which you should suspect if you see any papillary projections. We're almost done, hang in there. We finally come to peritoneal inclusion cysts. Now these, I want to first mention, are known by lots of different names. I've always called it peritoneal inclusion cyst because that's what I've been taught. But I know other people call them peritoneal cysts. Some people call them benign cystic mesotheliomas, which I find really confusing. And some people call them ovarian pseudocysts. But I'm going to stick with what I know. We're going to call it peritoneal inclusion cyst. So what is it? Essentially, it's cysts in the peritoneal cavity of women of reproductive age, which are fluid that's been trapped by peritoneal adhesions. So you must have a reason to have adhesions first. Often that will be because of trauma, previous abdominal surgery, history of pelvic inflammatory disease or a history of endometriosis. As you would expect, the cysts are then limited by whatever structures are surrounding them because they're within the peritoneum. So they can get very, very big and they're usually irregular and lobulated depending on what they're pressing up against. How can you tell a peritoneal inclusion cyst apart from things like hydrosalpinx or paraovarian cyst? 
Well, a good way to tell it apart is that it will surround the ovary. The other way is what I've already mentioned, that they are very big, they're irregular, lobulated, and the shape is determined by whatever structures surround them. They contain serous fluid, so on MR they will be low signal on T1 and high on T2. If you give some contrast, you will notice on the MR imaging that a peritoneal inclusion cyst is not actually a true cyst. It doesn't have its own proper wall, it just has walls formed by whatever structures are surrounding it. If you do resect it, they do tend to recur up to 50% of the time. So peritoneal inclusion cyst, what is it? It's just cysts in the peritoneum of a young woman who has a reason to have peritoneal adhesions. It will be irregular, lobulated and will surround the ovary. Not a proper cyst because it won't have a proper wall, but the walls are formed by whatever anatomical structures surround the inclusion cyst. So that's it. We've covered all the ovarian cysts that I want to talk about. Follicular cysts, corpus luteum cysts, thecal lutein cysts, ovarian hyperstimulation, paraovarian cysts and peritoneal inclusion cysts. But we are not done because I do want to spend just a few minutes telling you what complications can arise from ovarian cysts. Let's take a break, listen to Amar again and then we'll get on with the next part of this talk. So now we are all experts in ovarian cysts. We know what they are, we know how they arise, and we even remember the menstrual cycle from medical school. So now why am I still talking? Because I want to tell you about the different complications of ovarian cysts, which is going to help you both in an exam and when you're on call. So the first complication is the most common and the one we see most often is torsion. Torsion often occurs in children 25% of the time and also quite common in pregnancy 20% of the time. It can occur in a normal ovary but most likely a patient with torsion will have a pre-existing adnexal mass. Up to 80% of cases they will have an existing ovarian mass lesion. So let's start with a mental image. I want you to picture in your mind a uterus with ovaries on either side. I'm going to tell you how these things are connected. The ovary is connected to the uterus next to it by the utero-ovarian ligament. That's straightforward enough. The ovary is then connected on the other side laterally to the pelvic side wall by the infundibulo-pelvic ligament. So we've got connection to the uterus via the utero-ovarian ligament and then to the pelvic side wall by the infundibulo-pelvic ligament. And finally, it's connected to the broad ligament by something called the mesovarium. That should make sense. I'm going to say it one more time, just so you get that clear in your mind. The ovary is connected to the uterus by the utero-ovarian ligament. 
It's connected to the pelvic sidewall by the infundibulopelvic ligament and it's connected to the broad ligament by the mesovarium. Now the blood supply of the ovary comes from two places. It comes from the ovarian artery and that runs within the infundibulopelvic ligament. Which one was that? That was the one connecting the ovary to the pelvic sidewall. So the ovarian artery runs within the infundibulopelvic ligament. And finally, the other blood supply is the ovarian branch of the uterine artery, which runs within the utero-ovarian ligament. That was the one connecting the uterus and the ovary. hope that makes sense. So the ovary, when it torts, will twist on the mesovarium. Remember, the mesovarium is what connects the ovary to the broad ligament. You can get partial or intermittent torsion, so the ovary can tort and untort, and this can actually go on for hours, sometimes even days. This can cause quite a severe degree of ovarian edema. So just to recap the basics of torsion, we have a uterus with ovaries on either side. The ovary is connected to things around it. It's connected medially to the uterus by the utero-ovarian ligament. It's connected to the pelvic sidewall by the infundibulopelvic ligament and it's connected to the broad ligament via the mesovarium. The blood supply to the ovary comes from two places. It comes from the ovarian artery. Where was that? That was running in the infundibulopelvic ligament. And it comes from the ovarian branch of the uterine artery, which, remember, was running in the utero-ovarian ligament. Ovary will twist on the mesovarium and you'll get complete stasis of the venous and lymphatics. This will start with pain. If this carries on, then the ovary becomes congested, it becomes very edematous, and we then lose the arterial supply also. We know what torsion is, why do they get it? Why is the ovary torting? We've already said adnexal masses are the most common reason. They change the anatomy and then the mass itself acts like a focal point for the torsion. The most common adnexal mass that is usually associated with torsion is a dermoid cyst. Malignant ovarian masses are very, very rare cases of torsion. It's 2% or less. Other reasons ovaries can tort are reasons like long fallopian tubes. Sometimes you can have a, a very mobile hydrosalpinx or if you've previously had your tubes ligated. 60% of torsions occur on the right hand side. Why do you think that is? Most likely because there's reduced space on the left for torsion to occur because we've got the sigmoid colon sitting there. The other reason potentially is because we have higher venous pressures in the right ovarian vein, so you get more congestion of the mesosalpinx. It's a very, very rare to get bilateral torsion. So we've said that adnexal masses are the most common cause of torsion. It's very rare for the problem to be a malignant adnexal mass. Other reasons like long fallopian tubes or previously having your tubes ligated can also be a risk factor and the majority of torsions occur on the right-hand side. The patient will present with abdominal pain or pelvic pain, which can go on for hours, for days, sometimes even weeks. 
there are a wide variety of differentials we know, particularly if it's a right-sided pain. What you really want to know is how am I going to spot a torsion on ultrasound? Well, let's go through imaging findings in ovarian torsion. Let's start with ultrasound. Obviously, the findings on ultrasound depend largely on how long the ovary has been torted and how much there is a degree of vascular compromise. Let's first think about what's happening in the ovary, which will make it clear what we're supposed to see on ultrasound. So if you have a normal ovary and it torts, it will enlarge. The fluid within the ovary will transude into the follicles, which are all peripheral. So you'll have lots and lots of subcapsular cysts. If you have a big ovary with lots of small peripheral cysts and the clinical scenario is appropriate, then that should be highly suspicious for ovarian torsion. That's a normal ovary. Now, if it's an ovary that has a pre-existing mass, then you might see wall thickening of the ovary. You might see hemorrhage. You might see edema. The ovarian mass that's torting, you will usually see above the uterine fundus or the bladder. So cranial to the fundus or bladder. So, so far I've said if it's a normal ovary, then as the ovary enlarges, the fluid is squeezed, it transudes into the follicles, which are all peripheral. So a big ovary in an appropriate clinical setting with lots of multiple small peripheral cysts is highly suspicious for ovarian torsion. If there's a mass lesion and the mass in the ovary is torting, then you may see a thickened wall, you may see hemorrhage or edema, and that mass you will most often see cranial to the uterine fundus or cranial to the bladder. Finally, you may see a twisted vascular pedicle. If you look adjacent to the uterine fundus, you may see a round hyperechoic structure. This round hyperechoic structure will have lots of concentric hypoechoic stripes and that gives it this coil or target appearance. So this coil or target appearance lesion near the uterine fundus is a twisted vascular pedicle. You can usually see it, if you do a TV scan, you will see this in up to 90% of cases. The flow signal within this twisted pedicle has the appearance of lots of coiled vessels and it's called the whirlpool sign. Other things you might see, you might see some free fluid, you might see sometimes a solid mass and that solid mass next to the adnexa is just thickened tubes. I'm going to repeat this again because it's important and we know that I love repetition. So ultrasound features of ovarian torsion. In a normal ovary, you will see an enlarged ovary with lots and lots of peripheral cysts. That is highly suspicious in an appropriate clinical setting. If there is a pre-existing ovarian mass lesion, you may see wall thickening, hemorrhage, edema, and this mass will usually be lying cranial to the uterine fundus or to the urinary bladder. And finally, a twisted vascular pedicle. In a TV scan, you will spot it in 90% of cases and you get this hyperechoic structure 
with multiple concentric hypoechoic rings, giving it a whirlpool or target coiled appearance. The flow signal in this coiled twirled lesion will have, again, a coiled pattern, giving you a whirlpool sign. You can get free fluid. You can also get some thickened tubes, which give an appearance of a mass lesion abutting the adnexa. What will you see on Doppler imaging? Well, the first thing you'll see is reduced venous flow. The absence of venous flow has a 94% predictive value for diagnosing torsion, so it's very important. Absent venous flow. You then may also see a high resistance arterial flow pattern. What is a high resistance arterial flow pattern? That will be decreased or absent diastolic flow. Okay, so we're starting off with venous flow diminished, which has a very high predictive value for torsion. We will then see a high resistance arterial flow pattern, which is essentially absent diastolic flow. As the torsion progresses, we will lose both arterial and venous flow. I feel I have to mention here that even if both arterial and venous flow is present, you cannot rule out torsion because ovaries can tort and untort intermittently for days. If you go on to CT or MR this torsion, what will you see on cross-sectional imaging? Well, you will see the mass lesion that is precipitating this ovarian torsion. You will see an enlarged ovary and things that you would expect, thickened wall, hemorrhagic fluid and no contrast enhancement. Other things to look for, the uterus tends to deviate towards the torted side, it's pulled towards the torted side. You lose all the fat planes around the mass lesion and obviously general things like free fluid or hemorrhage within the pelvis. Finally, I have to mention the rare entity, isolated tubal torsion. This is a very, very uncommon and it's highly unlikely you'll manage to diagnose it preoperatively. Who gets an isolated tubal torsion? Most commonly, it's ladies that have had a previous tubal ligation. Other risk factors are things like hydrosalpinks and adnexal mass or adhesions. And what you'll see on imaging with an isolated tubal torsion is this elongated cystic mass with an echogenic wall that tapers as it gets to the uterus. So quick recap, isolated tubal torsion, generally in women who have had previous tubal ligation. Other causes are adhesions and admexal masses. What you'll see on imaging is a cystic structure with an echogenic wall, elongated cystic structure that tapers as it reaches the uterus. That's it. Torsion was the main complication that I wanted to mention. Cysts can of course rupture, they can bleed, but I have nothing specific to say on that topic. 
because imaging and presentation will be as you would expect for a bleeding cyst or ruptured cyst. And with that, I will conclude today's topic. So what have we talked about today? We've gone over the menstrual cycle. We then talked about the different types of ovarian cysts, the three types of functional cysts, follicular cysts, corpus luteal cysts and theca lutein cysts and other causes of ovarian cystic lesions, ovarian hyperstimulation, paraovarian cysts and peritoneal inclusion cysts. We spent some time talking about ovarian torsion and how we will spot it on imaging. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. As you said already, we are back. We had a brief holiday, but we are now back to our weekly episodes. We get a fair few emails with topic suggestions and we do try to cover them. Every episode that we've done has been suggested by someone. If there is a topic that you think a podcast episode will help you with, please do drop us an email and we'll try to cover it. Please do continue to get in touch any way you please. We love hearing your voice messages that you send on Anchor. We love the tweets. We love the emails. We've had people sending anecdotes from their training in countries all over the world. The States, Nigeria, Portugal, Spain, France. Please do keep sending us these. We love hearing them. We love reading them. And I keep saying we will start reading them out. All the emails and stories we get actually amaze us how much in common we have as radiologists with other trainees across the world. Now all your comments and compliments and feedback do a lot more than just put smiles on our faces. We do actually incorporate them into our training portfolios so please do keep them coming in. Finally, thank you so much to Amar for the music today. We're sure everyone enjoyed it as much as we did. Spread the word. Songs for FRCR is back with our weekly episodes. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, guys.